Listening to an audio recording of the Epsilon Theory Note, Starry Eyes and Starry Skies. Originally published on April 30th, 2019, written by Rusty Gwynn and read for you today by the author. For more, please visit EpsilonTheory.com, where a vibrant community discusses notes like this and other topics on the Epsilon Theory Forum. Please note that this is general information only and is not investment advice. The opinions expressed represent the personal views of the author. It is not a recommendation, and it is not customized for the situation of any investor. Epsilon Theory urges investors to see the advice of a financial advisor before making any investment decision. I remember when I first knew where I wanted to go to college. I also remember the look on my dad's face, sitting in the Holiday Inn in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. I could tell he was struggling with whether we could manage it. It would mean taking out about $25,000 in federal loans in my name, about $60,000 in his. We had never even considered taking out loans for me to go to college before. This was more debt than the mortgage my family had taken out on our house. A campus visit and a childhood spent building up credibility as a sober-minded, serious kid later, and we would be in for eighty-five grand. If I could get in, I knew, I had to do it. I had earned it, you see. No, I deserved it. So did 45 million other starry-eyed young Americans. At the often literal push of a button, we created debt now amounting to more than $1.6 trillion out of the ether to give each of us what we declared we deserved. Validation. Credibility. Credentials. All we had to do was reach out and take it. All we had to do was believe the myth. And yes, Virginia, the importance of post-secondary education in America is a myth, one of our most powerful. No, that doesn't mean that college and its attendant experience don't hold intrinsic value. It also doesn't mean that the credential offered by these institutions isn't a real currency. It means that the common knowledge underlying that currency is far more powerful than whatever the truth about college is. It means that the stories we tell about college are far more important in almost every way than the facts. It means that whenever we talk about college in America, we are nearly always talking about the meme of college. College is a meme of equality, something we raise our hands for because we believe in the importance of socioeconomic mobility, the American dream. College is a meme of human progress, Something we raise our hands for because we believe that expanding education, research, and knowledge will power ingenuity, innovation, and prosperity. College is a meme of meritocracy. Something we raise our hands for because we believe that talent and hard work cross all biological, social, racial, and gender boundaries. And that systems which reward merit permit the destruction of these artificial constraints. The myth of college is an idea which permits us to declare it to be synonymous with these principles. The consequence of this declaration is that we may also declare 
that any opposing idea opposes those principles. You don't hate equality, innovation, and merit, do you? We hold up our yay college signs in the same way as we do yay military, yay capitalism, and yay equality signs, because not doing so is to say that we oppose the right-sounding principles that form the basis of the myth. And just like yay capitalism, well, capitalizes on our desire to signal our deeply held belief in the power of rewarding economic risk-taking to convince us to permit distortions in economic risk-taking. Yay College exploits our belief in equality, innovation, merit, and education to convince us to permit distortions in the capacity of our university and degree system to deliver any of those things. The myth has also driven us to create a system of laws and policy that have, in turn, produced a very real student loan crisis. As a political issue, this is far more powerful and more connected to the political zeitgeist than most people want to believe. It is a place for clear eyes and full hearts. Neither particularly clear eyes nor an especially full heart are needed to recognize that educational attainment has been on a steady, long-term rise in the United States for more than half a century. This is a good thing. In 1950, only 34% of American adults had finished high school. Today, that's about how many have completed at least a bachelor's degree program. There are all sorts of studies documenting other positive developments in educational attainment, too, not least the convergence of opportunities across gender and, to a lesser extent, across racial and socioeconomic boundaries. But what is the right level? Leaving aside the myth of college for a moment, do somewhere between a third and a half of jobs in the United States require what an undergraduate program teaches? I don't know. Sorry, it's not an objectively answerable question, and the responsiveness in what those programs teach to what is being perceived as being needed complicates this question further. I'm happy, however, to give you my opinion. I think the number of people who need to attend college from a knowledge and skills perspective is far, far less than one-third of adults. Yes, engineering professions and those in biomedical and applied sciences require a base of knowledge that takes time to accumulate. Same for those preparing for postgraduate research and teaching roles across subjects. I think that you can make an argument for elementary and secondary education just on the basis of the breadth of subject knowledge that is theoretically required too. Based on 2016 data, those subjects account for about 22% of undergraduate degrees granted, plus however many you want to count as being necessary to refill postgraduate teaching posts, a vanishingly small figure. In all, I am confident there is a vocational need for four-year college for no more than 10 to 15% of adults. Am I saying that the tens of millions of programmers, financial analysts, writers, designers, bankers, managers, accountants, product marketers, and sales personnel out there could function at equivalent or higher levels with less than a year of focused vocational training if such a thing existed? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. Am I saying that only 10 to 15% of adults should go to four-year universities? No. Look, preparing for a career isn't the only reason you might think about spending four years at a university. 
but most of the reasons we provide are also conflations of the type that are so common when we deal with other abstractions, myths, and memes. In other words, because these ideas have become attached to the myth of college, it takes little more than a rhetorical flourish to shut down criticism of the value of post-secondary education. Simply assert that someone who is skeptical of our approach to post-secondary education opposes these ideas. What are these conflations and ideas? How about, it's about discovering yourself, as if one couldn't achieve that by traveling the world? I'm sure you've heard, it's about learning how to think critically, or learning how to problem-solve in a group setting, or developing confidence and communication skills, as if college is somehow better equipped than other settings to deliver those lessons. We are also fans of, it is an important opportunity to network, or to build lifelong friendships, which are great, but also tautological rather than fundamental. That is, college is important because others consider it important. There is one reason, and in my opinion, one reason only, to attend college that does not relate to vocation, preparation for a life of research or teaching, or the fact that a critical mass of one's age cohort is already there. Because college permits us to be wrong, offensive and awkward in exploration of new and uncomfortable ideas and knowledge in a setting with low consequences. Now, you would be forgiven for wondering whether universities are committed to this one critical, indispensable function. I think most still are. This function alone, for many, for me, would justify the investment of 5% of life and 10% of lifetime earnings. It is huge, truly. It also has almost nothing to do with why most people choose college. Even if we grant credit for to be intellectually challenged and stimulated in the chart below, most of the reasons people go to college are either things four-year college isn't unusually well-suited to deliver or else vocational in nature. If that's the deductive part of the story, the inductive argument lies in chosen degrees. In the 19th century, American universities were institutions that turned liberally educated student philosophers into lawyers and clergy. In the early to mid-20th century, American universities swapped out clergy for businessmen and started teaching women to be teachers, but otherwise were much the same. Today, American universities are officially in the business of vocational training for white-collar professions. Except even that isn't exactly true. The myth of college is that it grants invaluable life experience, broadened horizons, and deeper skills that no other four-year experience for a young adult could match. The zeitgeist of college is the grudging admission that it is now really about preparing workers for long and successful careers. The reality of college is that it sells a license to use a credential. What do I mean by a credential? I mean the portfolio of useful signals that are sent by the achievement of a university degree. Beyond the attachment to the ideals of the myth of college, much of that signal, I think, exists in our common knowledge about what traits a student needs to be admitted to that particular degree-granting institution. You know, intelligence, creativity, breadth of talents, work ethic, having the correct parents and grandparents, things like that. Much of whatever is left exists in the signal from completing the degree, 
Can you follow instructions? Are you comfortable pulling all-nighters? How do you feel about sitting at a desk for 60 hours a week? And no, like the related question of what share of jobs truly requires the skills gained in four-year college, the question of the share of the observable value of a college degree that we can attribute to skill gain versus credential is neither provable nor falsifiable. So doubt it and tout the anecdotally valuable lessons of a college education all you want. But if you do doubt it, you'll have to explain why all the private equity partners, lawyers, former actors, and celebrities caught up in the admissions scandal paid that kind of money to get their kids admitted. Would you believe it's really because they wanted little Jimmy to discover who he was? You'll have to explain, as Brian Kaplan suggests in The Case Against Education, why, if the value of college is really in the knowledge and experience, more locals don't just audit lectures to reap all the benefits. He won't get caught. I promise. You'll have to explain the sheepskin effect, why college graduates out-earn high school grads as janitors and bartenders and all sorts of other things. Regardless of whether you think a degree is valuable because of some intrinsic skill and knowledge gain, or because of the credential it offers, the degree itself is unquestionably valuable. It is socially, economically, and politically valuable. And despite all the growth in degrees granted by U.S. universities, the income premium those degrees offer has been stable. College grads earn about 75 to 80% more than their high school graduate peers. Except there's a problem with this, too. There is an income premium from university degrees, but also emerging evidence of an evaporating wealth premium after we have adjusted for family size and life cycle. The below exhibit comes from research conducted by the St. Louis Fed's Center for Household Financial Stability. White college graduates born in the 1980s and afterward do make more money than their high school-only peers, but it isn't translating into net worth. Things are even worse for college-educated black Americans. On the basis calculated by the St. Louis Fed, cohorts beginning as early as the 1960s have produced almost no net worth advantage against their high school-educated peers. Why did the erosion in college's net worth premium begin earlier for minorities? There are probably a lot of reasons, ranging from fewer investment services offered to underbanked black communities for much of this period, to predatory lending practices that have routinely sucked wealth out of those communities on a disproportionate basis. What most whites consider standard financial services products have simply not been available on the same basis to blacks and Hispanics. But I think there's more to the story. And this is a story I'm telling you, not a fact. I think that the growth in credentialism has also created an arms race among institutions and a greater separation of the credential value of so-called elite institutions from the rest. I think that legacy policies and other admission structures have effectively shut many minorities out of capturing this premium. And there is a premium to getting Team Elite stamped on your passport. But leave net worth differences between demographic groups in each age cohort aside. Are the post-1980 cohorts intrinsically lazy, irresponsible, and unwilling stewards of assets? Or is there, perhaps, a less stupid still only partial, explanation for the slow disintegration of the college degree net worth premium. So why and how did the college credential rapidly grow, then lose its power to drive differences in wealth, 
all while keeping all the attendant mythology intact. The credential value of the university degree became common knowledge at the same time that the economic means to significantly expand secondary and post-secondary education in the U.S. became a reality, and at that same time that agricultural and manual labor went into secular decline. Good-intentioned Americans who wanted their children, or their charges, to experience better, more prosperous lives, rightfully and justifiably, celebrated college specifically, and education more broadly, as the engines which produced social mobility, wealth, career prospects, and lifestyles that were better than those experienced by each generation's parents. Similarly good-intentioned Americans went into public office with visions of expanding the stream to include more and more people for whom these early efforts were insufficient. We created lending programs, guarantees, and a system of laws to permit the extension of almost limitless credit to aspiring students and their families, and to make much of that debt nearly impossible to discharge, because everyone deserves to go to college. In doing all of this, the values we ascribed to college became narrative. That narrative became the zeitgeist, and that zeitgeist became the myth of college. And in our obsessive celebration of the myth of college, instead of the direct celebration of its wondrous underlying traits, we unwittingly granted our university system unabridged letters patent to oversee the right of Americans to earn a good living. In short, we created a guild. You know, what the Romans called collegia. Like guilds, our universities set the terms of trade in their credentials. They decided who could participate and who could not. They accumulated power and prestige through levies assessed on any who wished to practice a trade for which they held the patent. No, our modern guilds couldn't keep us from learning what they knew. Give me three weeks, kids, and I'll teach you what you need to know about being a banking analyst. But they could absolutely withhold their credential, the thing which allowed those trades to be practiced. What did they do with this power, you ask? They did this. They extracted every ounce of the credential premium for themselves as a license fee. Don't blame the parents, guidance counselors, and high school principals who genuinely wanted their kids to have better lives than they did, even if some of their other behaviors belie that statement. Don't blame the good-intentioned politicians who saw expanding the stream as good public policy. Don't even blame the universities for simply following the opportunity the market provided. Okay, blame them a little bit, but truly blame all of us, because it really took all of us to create the common knowledge which imbues our most prized traits in a single social institution. With it, we sold a generation of starry-eyed students a ceiling on their potential and called it a starry sky. And no, college debt isn't the sole cause of whatever is not happening to the net worth of college graduates. Timing of favorable investment environments, the inability of these generations to acquire real estate assets, and the concentration of jobs with these remarkable income differentials in cities with extreme rent costs all play a role too, obviously. 
Still, feel free to take, we didn't just create a system to extract wealth premium from college students through debt-fueled brutal college cost inflation. We also pulled forward financial asset returns to benefit existing asset owners through the use of extreme monetary policy and extracted a portion of that wealth premium through NIMBY housing policies in every major U.S. city outside of Texas for a test spin and see how it feels. Now we've got to figure out what to do about the hell we created on the paving stones of good intentions. What are the problems? Problem number one is unnecessary productivity loss. We lose an average of two to three years of productive asset building, creatively valuable years of happiness and freedom across each gener generation of Americans by effectively forcing millions of Americans to pay a toll to post-secondary educational institutions that they neither need nor wish to pay. Problem number two constraining paths to prosperity. Through hundreds of billions in non-dischargeable debt, we are stifling the traditional paths to prosperity for just about anyone who won't inherit money from their parents or who doesn't strike it rich in an entrepreneurial venture. Problem three are distortions relating to a generational wealth gap. We are creating a generational wealth gap that presents meaningful risks to various capital and non-financial asset markets, and most importantly, entrepreneurial risk-taking. And problem four, hampering household formation. We are piling on top of already challenged demographic trends with an additional bias toward later and less frequent household formation, which has both social and economic implications. Some people of a similar political persuasion to me would say the right answer is to do nothing. It's sad, sure, but all those people signed on the dotted line. The market says this is what a degree is worth, and so families can choose to pay it or not. Either way, they live with the consequences. I hear you. I paid my college loans and feel the temptation to go full get off my lawn about those grousing today. Except there's nothing natural about this market. The price students paid or are paying for these credentials is a reflection of decades of public policy permitting and encouraging the extension of credit for college to anyone and everyone who requests it. The demand side of the market has been aided by the artificial impact of 12 years of publicly funded curricula, messaging, and quote, education designed explicitly to feed as many students as possible to the guilds of post-secondary education. It is a distorted market. Others, like Senator Warren, have said that the solution is jubilee, to make college free, much cheaper, and to permit the discharge of significant quantities of debt. There are shades of MMT here, and you'll hear some make the very stupid argument that the important thing is that the proposal isn't really an outlay, but rather the elimination of a non-cash government asset. Oof. Look, this is a good intention policy that sees the plight of tens of millions of Americans and searches for a direct solution. I'm empathetic. Proposals like Warren's would begin to address some of the structural problems created by historical government interference in the market for education, noted above. We can't pretend the money comes from nowhere. No matter how you look at it, it would be a tax on asset owners. It's a tough thing for me to get me to believe the layering on more public policy will ever fix the distortions caused by public policy, but maybe it's time for an intergenerational compact, a boomer millennial summit of sorts to figure out how we share in responsibility and commitment here. Alas, it's moot anyway. 
The Jubilee proposals don't just fail to get to the root of the problem, they exacerbate it. The biggest underlying social problems above are, number one, that we're railroading entirely too many students into college programs whose skill gains could be provided much more efficiently in alternative, less time-consuming, and less expensive ways than four years at whatever private college. And that, number two, a combination of public policy and our collective cultivation of the myth of college have permitted guild-like universities to raise tuition to demand a kingly share of any wealth premium offered by the credentials they confer. The debt problem is a problem in itself, but it is also a subsidiary problem caused by these two problems. Guess how much the likes of Bucknell, Tufts, and SMU will adjust their planned annual tuition hikes over time in response to a policy providing $50,000 in debt jubilee or college cost reductions. If you answered $50,000 or more, you win a free subscription to Epsilon Theory. Congrats! I don't have a full answer. Because I can't have a full answer. The student loan crisis is the kind of big deal that requires us to come together to decide what our compact with one another is going to be. If it's possible for us to do that kind of thing anymore. I will tell you that I think any real answer that isn't just good-sounding election season political theater will have at least these three traits. It moves college lending outside of government purview and off government's balance sheets. Permits charging off college debt and really truly assigns those losses to capital. And third, it extracts cost limitation agreements and expanded commitments to fund underserved and lower income student costs from universities in exchange for the ability to retain not-for-profit status. And yes, I'm dead serious about that last one. I believe challenging the assumption of university entitlement to not-for-profit status is the sine qua non of any solution to the student loan crisis. As for the myth of college, I don't know how we move away from it. You all, both conservatives and progressives love to talk new artisans and the glories of welding One group just talks about it over a beer at the bar, and the other listens to it on This American Life. It's the same damn thing. But rejecting credentials remains a for-thee-and-not-for-me kind of thing. There is no first-mover advantage to saying that you and yours are choosing to build lives based only on true things, like what you know and how hard you work, rather than a credential. Clear eyes, folks. This is another competition game, another stag hunt. Whatever we decide, the issue is coming to a head. I worry that it's going to come to a head in the just-do-something variety that will lead us to a policy error, which aggravates the core problem instead of resolving it. Education, colleges, and the student loan crisis sit at the very center of our non-financial zeitgeist. Below is a network map of all the non-financial articles in the LexisNexis News Desk database over the last year arranged by the similarity in the use of language. The highlighted cluster to the right, that's a cluster that's all about education, colleges, and student loans. The language we use to write and speak about education is powerfully connected to everything else we write and speak about for two reasons. First, it is powerfully connected because education is topically connected. Healthcare institutions are attached to colleges. University research studies influence industry technology, and commercial research. Graduates take jobs in industry. 
but its powerful connection is also the result of similarity in the meaning we attach to education and how that meaning is shared with topic-crossing ideas like justice, creativity, discipline, and progress. That is what I mean by the myth of college. It's a real thing, and it will take all the full hearts we can muster to deal with it and to dispose of it. It is no trivial task to do those things while celebrating the principles like innovation, creativity, hard work, passion, equality, and opportunity that we have attached to the myth of college as synonyms, principles which we have allowed the credential to parade as part of itself. It will be the work of a generation. Our grandchildren are worth the effort. They deserve it.